Uh, thank you, and once again, good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. This is lesson number 38 in a series of theological broadcasts to deal with the great doctrine, the relationship of the Son to the Father, the humanity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the character, teachings, command, and miracles of Christ, the death, resurrection, and ascension. And now we come to lesson number 38, which deals with the second coming of Christ. Lesson 38 and 39 and lesson 40 and lesson 41 will all deal with this great subject, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is such a vast subject, we cannot possibly complete it in four broadcasts, so we'll have the very briefest type of scanning on these four broadcasts to deal with the second coming of Christ. After all, the second coming of Christ is the main theme of either testament, with more than 500 verses in the Bible to deal with the subject matter directly or indirectly, and would be impossible on four broadcasts of 30 minutes apiece to cover the subject adequately. But we'll do what we can to cover it as time allows. Our first broadcast of the second coming of Christ being lesson number 38 in the theological seminar of the air. Now, some people teach that the second coming is when at death Jesus comes to receive the soul. But that is not a public revelation visible to all the world. We are told in the Bible that when he cometh, behold, every eye shall see him. Revelation chapter 1. And when every eye sees him, this is certainly not the time of anyone's death. The people who mistakenly confound the second coming of Jesus Christ for the coming of the angel of the Lord or the angels to escort the saved soul home to heaven are a little confused in their Bible study. Uh, Jesus Christ said, I'll come again and receive you to myself. And this certainly could not have been a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ in the sense of that death. For if the Lord Jesus Christ had to get up and come down to receive every Christian who died, he'd be getting up about 5,000 times a day. Acts 1, verse 10 to 11, describes the ascension, which we studied in previous lessons, and describe the second coming as, first of all, being personal, second, bodily, third, visibly, and four, with power. This cannot possibly be the destruction of Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ did not come personally and did not come bodily. This cannot be the second coming of Christ at the death of a Christian, for at that time he does not come bodily, nor does he come visibly, nor does he come with power. The modern attempts of the international socialists to confine the second coming of Jesus Christ to the death of the Christian, or the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, or the destruction of Jerusalem, and similar apocryphal nonsense, is due to the fact that these reprobates don't believe that he's coming back to take over this earth, and of course the Bible clearly teaches his main mission is to overthrow the United Nations, the Roman Catholic Church, the National Council of Christian Churches, and the world government, the HEW, the International Bankers, Illuminati, and the powers that be. The king of this world become the kings of our Lord and his Christ at the second advent, and this is an overthrow of Gentile dominion, bodily, visibly, with power. The Savior's first coming was humili humiliation. That is, at his first coming, he was a lamb. At his second coming, he's a lion. At his first coming, they put a crown of thorns on his head. At his second coming, he is king of kings and lord of lords with many crowns. At his first coming, they spit on him and slapped him in the face. And you spit on him and slap him in the face next time, you'll be in the lake of fire before you can say Westcott and Hort. His first coming was an humiliation, but his second will be visible and glorious with power. Now, there are three major viewpoints respecting the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first of these we call the post-millennial view from mill annum, a thousand years in Revelation chapter 20. The post-millennial means before the thousand years. 
That is, it teaches the second coming will follow rather than precede the millennial age. According to this system, men bring in the kingdom by the HEW care packages, the Peace Corps, the United Nations, UNESCO, and Equal Rights Amendments. When they get the world all fixed up where they have a thousand years of peace, then Jesus comes back. All communists are post-millennial. All atheists are post-millennial. All agnostics are post-millennial. If truly atheists and agnostics and communists leave out the second coming of Christ altogether, but all these people teach that you make the earth a better place to live in by ending man's inhumanity to man, by torturing, imprisoning, jailing, and litigating, and stealing, and lying from your fellow man until the perfect kingdom is brought in. This is the teaching of Hegel, Engels, Karl Marx, Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky, Castro, Mao Zedong, and 80% of the professors at the state universities in the state where you live. It is called post-millennial. What it amounts to is the evolutionary theory that man, by his own efforts through education, can bring in a perfect reign of peace on this earth by leveling all distinctions. This is to be done by making men like women, making women like men, making black people like white people, white people like black people, by taking money from the rich and getting it to the poor, by making Occidentals Oriental, by making Orientals Occidental, by making Catholics Protestants and Protestant Catholics, and in the end it may, winds up making God like the devil and the devil like God. If you're going to level and bring to a common denominator and level all distinctions, eventually you have to make heaven like hell and hell like heaven. Now there is a sobering thought, ain't it? There's nowhere in the world you can develop womanly men and menly women and childish adults and mature adolescents and Occidental Orientals and Oriental Occidentals without making a heavenly devil and a devilish god. If you're going to get rid of the all objects and go to the relative, then obviously the obvious end of that is a hell and heaven and a heaven and hell. Or as the Bible says, woe be to them that call evil good and those that call good evil. This is the post-millennial theory. Very popular in the 18th and 19th century when the King James Bible was being preached and so many conversions were resulting that the superstitious religious people thought the kingdom was coming. The second view is called the R millennial view. The R, the A, of course, signifying a uh, contradiction to the term. A theist believes in God, an atheist doesn't believe in God. A Gnostic is a knower, an agnostic is a non-knower. A millennial is a man who believes in a thousand-year reign, an A or R millennial believes in no thousand-year reign. He doesn't believe in a literal period of a thousand years, but believes that when Christ comes, everything ends quickly in the final judgment. The amillennial view was adopted by the Presbyterians and Roman Catholics, and then adopted by many uh, other groups when the kingdom failed to appear. Just before World War I, all the religious quacks of the day, and all the people who believed Charlie Darwin thought the kingdom was coming. World War, 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 World War I kind of shook them up. And the few post-millennials who, re uh, who remained were quickly obliterated in World War II. And now the only people we have who believe in that man can bring in a kingdom by his own works are international socialists and communists. Christians don't believe it. Save people now either believe amillennial, no reign of Christ on earth, or else premillennial. The premillennial view is that there can be no thousand-year reign of peace on this earth, there can be no peace on earth goodwill to man until the king comes. The premillennial view is there is no peace to the wicked saith my God, and until the Prince of Peace comes, there will be wars and rumors of war. The Lord comes and then follows the millennium in the premillennial view. Every great major soul winner in the history of the church, 
since the turn of the century has been a pre-millennialist. There are no soul winners who are post-millennial or amillennial. J. Gresham Macon, Benjamin Warfield, and Dr. A.T. Robertson were amillennial, and they're the people who taught the Christian school how to deny the King James Bible. Every major soul in America today, Jack Van Ippey, John Rawlins, Harold Henniger, Bob Gray, Curtis Hudson, uh, Jimmy Stroud, Alex Dunlap, Theodore Epp, uh, the late uh, Charlie Fuller, the late Dr. DeHaan, uh, Billy Graham, Jack Wilson, Percy Crawford, Jim Mercer, Fred Brown, E.J. Daniels, Hyman Appleman, Jesse Henley, every one of them is pre-millennial. Then the second coming has another problem connected with it, not only in regards to the millennium, but in regards to what they call the rapture. The rapture is a secret event, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17, when the Lord comes for his saints and they meet him in the air. The revelation of the contrary is a public view, Revelation 1, 7, when the Lord comes with his saints to set up the millennial reign, 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. We should make the distinction between the rapture and the revelation. Along these lines, it's interesting to note that the first time the Lord Jesus Christ came, he first appeared in secret to his own disciples, and only saved people saw his birth in the manger, and then 30 years later he appeared publicly at the ministry of John the Baptist to his enemies. In like manner, the second coming of Christ will first be in private to those who know him, his saints, and then seven years later, at the end of Daniel's 70th week, a advent in wrath before his enemies. Another unsolved problem among modern pre-millennialists is to whether or not the church will go through the tribulation, so there are what they call pre-tribulation and mid-tribulation debates and post-tribulation debates, all of which amounts to nothing in the light of Scripture. In the light of Scripture, Daniel's 70th week is, is a time when an element of works enters salvation, when the body of Christ is gone, when baptismal regeneration is connected with Acts 2.38, where the seventh day is observed, Saturday, where there is temple worship and an element of works connected with salvation, of which we find no trace in the church age. Therefore, to say the church goes to the tribulation to teach an out-and-out heresy, much in line with the heresies being taught by the people who are trying to get to heaven now by baptism and observing the seventh day. Now, the prophecies of Christ's second coming are many. His first coming was prophesied, and these prophecies came to pass literally. And this should give the Christian great confidence that the prophecy of the second advent will also be fulfilled literally and not at all in a figurative or spiritual sense. It was foretold by the prophets in Daniel 7.13. It was foretold by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 25.31. It was foretold by Paul in 1 Timothy 6.14. It was foretold by angels in Acts 1, verse 10 to 11. Now, when the prophets and Jesus and Paul and the angels tell you that Jesus Christ is coming, he's coming. And none of the prophecies I've just listed were fulfilled at his first coming. In Daniel 7:13, I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. That isn't the first coming. Matthew 25:31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. That didn't happen at the first coming. Paul says, keep this mammoth without spot until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ could have been his first coming. His first coming was past. Now, the time of Christ's coming is a secret that only the Lord knows. Christ says in Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In his earthly existence, the Son of Man, when on earth, limited by the infirmities of human flesh, 
Not even Jesus Christ himself professed to know the day and the hour. If he'd manifested his deity and availed himself of the mind of the Father, of course he could have foretold it, but at this time he did not. Jesus Christ as man did not know the date, but Jesus Christ as God is omniscient and certainly knows the exact moment when it will occur. Now, what is the purpose of Christ's coming? Well, first of all, the main thing is to complete the salvation of the saints. He had delivered us from the power and penalty of sin, but then we shall be saved forever from the presence of sin. Our salvation, we must remember, is not complete until the advent. When Paul speaks about the Christian being saved by hope, Romans chapter 8, you'll be very careful to notice that he doesn't put the emphasis on the Campbellite nonsense about hoping you're saved. The word hope, used in Romans chapter 8, is talking about the redemption of your body at the second advent. And when Paul says we're saved by hope, there's no reference whatsoever to I hope I'm saved, or I guess I'm saved, or I think I'm saved, or I'm probably saved, nothing of the kind. Uh, to the contrary, when Paul says uh, we're saved by hope, he's talking about the blessed hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ to save our body, which, uh, of course, has not yet been redeemed. Our soul has been redeemed, our body has been purchased by a down payment, and the earnest of the Spirit deposited in that earthen vessel, but the earthen vessel is headed for the grave and worms until it is redeemed by our completed salvation at the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, secondly, Jesus Christ must return to be glorified in his saints. We must remember that Jesus Christ in this age is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This world has never wanted him, it will never have him, and those of us who boast about him look like fools in the eyes of the world. When I say that, I mean the eyes of any 300 leaders picked at random from any 300 organizations. Now, it is true the world will make a passing vow at his teaching. That's appropriate for purpose of hypocrisy. Nobody ever kept his teaching to start with or to finish. <laughs> and it's true the world every Christmas Easter will put on a commercial show to sell Easter bunnies and eggs and lilies, you know, and uh, Santa Claus, Christmas trees, and raise the price and things. But this world has had, never had any use for a bloody, nail-pierced body on a blood-stained cross where a body has been played and whipped with an inch of his life. This world wants peace and prosperity, not a crucified life outside the camp. And we saints who brag about Jesus Christ and love the Lord Jesus Christ are in love with the living Savior. We're not serving an historical, legendary figment of our imagination. The Christ the world wants is the Christ of Jesus Christ Superstar, or the Christ of Jesus of Nazareth. One of these effeminate, uh, watered-down, anemic, uh, guru, Khalil Gibran philosophers, whose international socialist turning of the cheeks so the communists can get all your property. And, of course, that's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. So he'll come to be glorified in his saints. Next, he will come to bring to light the hidden things of darkness, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. There is much that's gone on this world that needs to be brought to light that has never been brought to light. When Jesus Christ comes the second time, this, these things will be brought to light and made manifest. If you want to know who shot Kennedy, I can tell you how to find out. I can tell you how to find out who killed him, what he killed him with, when he killed him, when he planned to kill him, and how he carried it out. You say, when? 1 Corinthians 4, 5. When Jesus Christ comes, he comes to judge. The Bible speaks about him judging the saints at the judgment seat of Christ and then judging the nations, Matthew 25, at the second advent. He comes to reign. In Revelation 11, verse 15, we read, The kings of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
Jesus Christ has never been given the fulfillment of the great promise that was made to him by the angel, Luke 1, where it was said he will rule and reign upon the throne of David. He's never been there. He's only been to a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And there'll be a time when the kingdom of this world will be given to Jesus Christ, and then you'll see a righteous reign. If you're looking forward to a time when there'll be a government with no sin, no sorrow, and cities whose alabaster is not glean, uh, glean is not dim by human tears, there's only one thing you need to wait for, and that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. You're not waiting for a $50 rebate so you can have enough money to buy a pound of butter and all that nonsense while your taxes go up. If you want perfect government, it doesn't lie with the Pope. It lies with Jesus Christ. There is no hope in the Pope. There's no hope in the United Nations. I'm not speaking facetiously. David said, What wait I for? My hope is in thee. If your hope for world government and perfect peace lies on a Pope or a College of Cardinals or UNESCO or UNEFCO or the United Nations or the World Bank, you, my friend, are a deluded fool. And that's putting it charitably, and that's an understatement. The calendar for the next 20 years is three world wars. The first of these world wars is found in Revelation chapter 6, verse 3 to 5. The second world war is found in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10 to verse 18. And the third world war is found in Revelation chapter 20. If you're looking for perfect government, peace on earth, goodwill of man, without the presence of Jesus Christ, you're going to have a long wait. Sixthly, Jesus Christ comes to receive us to himself, for he promised in John 14, 13, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And finally, praise God, he comes to destroy death. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25 and 26, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And death, of course, the scourge of mankind, the common lot of all of us, the final end for everybody I'm talking to right now, unless Jesus Christ shows up, is a hospital bed or a grave or both. Be not deceived, there's nothing the National Education Association or the American Medical Association is going to do to change what I said a bit. I have made a final, didactic, authoritative statement and the statement I just made is more infallible than any statement made by anybody living or dead unless they made a statement in line with the Bible. I'll make it again. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, the common lot of every man hearing my voice is a hospital bed or a grave or both. I'll grant you the exception of the rule might be that you might be blown to a thousand pieces by an atomic bomb or drown the crabs get you. But you get the gist of what I just said. If the Lord Jesus Christ tarries, you're a sick man or a dead man or both. That goes for all of you. I don't care who listens to the broadcast. I could care less. All flesh is grass. Christ comes to destroy a man's greatest scourge, death, and deliver those who through all their lives for fear were kept in fear because of death and afraid of dying. Now, how is Christ coming? Well, as I said before, the Bible clearly teaches two separate parts to his coming, uh, two portions divided into two sections. First of all, we have what they call the rapture. The term rapture does not occur in the Word of God as such. We call it rapture from rapto, the Latin word meaning to snatch or to catch out or to be caught away quickly. And I don't know what else you could call it. The word rapture is certainly the right word for it. If you can imagine suddenly being snatched out of your skin and converted to a new body, and being hauled out of this universe fast in the speed of light, 
if you don't call that a rapture, I don't know what you do call it, but it speaks of a rapture and it speaks about a revelation. Now, first of all, about the rapture. It is secretly. First Thessalonians 5, 2. Matthew 24, 44. Matthew 24, 50. This rapture will take place, first of all, as thunder. Job chapter 37, verse 1 to 4. This thunder will be the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. First Thessalonians 4. This sound like thunder will be taken to be a cobalt bomb or a hydrogen bomb by the unsaved people, and SAC will be alerted, and the hotlines to Washington will be buzzing, and they'll call out everything they've got and begin to throw it. This rapture will take place in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and when this takes place, the body of the saint will be converted immediately to a brand new body, and he'll be just like Jesus Christ. This will take place in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. This light that will go off will shine around the world like lightning shining from the east to the west, and in it the Christian will hear his name called, John chapter 10, verse 1 to 10. The Christian will hear his name called in this thunder, and he will be told three words, which are found in Proverbs and the book of Revelation chapter 4 and the book of Revelation chapter 11. The three words that will signal the rapture are, Come up hither. And when the trumpet goes off, the sound of the archangel, that blast of thunder, and the world lights up, the Christian will hear his name called, and those three words, Come up hither, and he will depart in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and will leave his blood behind him. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 48 to 50, Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In a church service, if the Lord comes, there will be nothing left in the pews but a pile of bloody clothes and blood running down to the pulpit ankle deep. The unsaved people who are left in the church service will go insane and lose their minds, undoubtedly go stark raving mad. And if the rapture occurs in a night service, the highway patrolman will come to churches will be entirely empty except for a few demented people in them, hysterically grinding their teeth, chewing their tongues, and batting their heads against the wall or in comas. And the highway patrol will come in and find blood all over the floor, clothes all over the seat, and anywhere from 50 to 500 cars parked outside with no drivers. Lights still on. The rapture will take place in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and we're told to look for the Lord, not the tribulation. The modern nonsensical school of post-tribulation rapture that wrote such silly books as uh, the late great pre-tribulation rapture theory and all that nonsense have tried to prove that the pre-tribulation uh, rapture theory came from much of demon-possessed charismatics in England back in the 19th century. But of course, those who know our Bible, we know a chump when we see one. We were told to look for the Lord. We weren't told to look for the tribulation. There isn't one past in that Bible tells us to look for the tribulation. We're told to look for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming before the tribulation. The reason why these soft-skinned Girl Scouts today think the church is going to go through the tribulation is because being campfire girls sitting around air-conditioned offices drinking Cokes out of Coke machines, the blind fools think that times are getting so tough with inflation and taxes we must be on the verge of entering the tribulation. This is due to a Girl Scout type of Christianity that is quite popular this day. It's kind of a daily vacation Bible school interdenominational rap business where you rap with the ethnic culture of the dynamic tensions of adjusting your personality, you see. And for such thin-skinned brownies, they would think the tribulation's already here. We may ignore it as being a sort of a Disneyland theology not worth time to study. All right, we're told to look for the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven, not for the rap, not for the tribulation. We're told to look for him to come for us 
not for the great tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. Then after the rapture, Daniel's 70th week takes place at an unknown interval. And although we assume that Daniel's 70th week starts as soon as the rapture takes place, there again is no uh, authority in the Word of God or nothing in the Word of God that will lead us to believe that it will take place exactly as soon as the rapture takes place. We say this because the rapture is undated. The end of Daniel's 70th week is pretty clear. The end of Daniel's 70th week is the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, Yom Kippur. And the end of Daniel's 70th week is plainly in the fall between September and October, and if our calendar is right, lies between the year 1996 and the year 2000. But, of course, this is the advent, the public coming of Jesus Christ at the Revelation. There is no warrant in the Word of God for assuming that Daniel's 70th week takes place immediately, for the rapture could have been at any time in history, and as a matter of fact, Paul was looking for the rapture in his day. Therefore, the rapture is undated, and Daniel's 70th week will begin sometime thereafter, although we're not told the exact interval. Then we have, of course, after Daniel's 70th week, the second phase of Christ's second coming, which is the revelation. The rapture is secretly for saved people only. The revelation is public to his enemies as King of kings and Lord of lords. Or as John says in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. Matthew 24:30, Titus 2:13 also bear out this very important truth. But Christ's coming is divided into two sections, the rapture and the revelation. All then is in order. At his first coming, his herald was John the Baptist. At his second coming, his herald will be Elijah. At his first coming, Rome was in power. At his second coming, Rome will be in power. At his first coming, the revelation of God was preceded by 400 years of apocryphal nonsense. At his second coming, the Bible revelation ceased 400 years before the advent in 1611. At his first coming, he came secretly, privately at night to those who knew him as Savior and believed on him, and then later published to his enemies. At his second coming, he appears first secretly in private to the body of believers, and then publicly at the revelation to his enemies. Ah, the unsearchable riches of the King James 1611 text. How unsearchable are its judgments on Christian scholarship and its ways past finding out. Now, next time, next uh, week at the same time, we'll take up Lesson 39, our study in the Theological Seminar of the Air, which continues to deal with Christ's coming. On our next broadcast, we'll take up the matter of the uh, manner of his coming and the uh, verse of the deal with the place of his second coming. And then we'll spend a great deal of time on next week's broadcast dealing with the signs of Christ's coming. There are 23 of these signs listed in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, and there are 38 signs listed in Matthew chapter 24. Although all of these signs deal with the advent, of course, they only indicate how close the rapture is because the rapture will precede the advent. So on next week's broadcast, Lesson 39, the Theological Seminar of the Air, we shall discuss the place of Christ's coming, the manner of his coming, and the signs that precede the greatest event in the history of the universe. Not the first coming of Christ, coming of Christ to die for sinners, which was the best thing that happened to us, but the second coming of Jesus Christ to get that which rightly belongs to him. And this is the red-letter day on God's calendar, the glorification of his Son. May the Lord bless you, and good day.